I've told you the truth, but only a part of it. Now I see I shall have to tell you the whole truth. Shut the door, Mr. Ellington. Then you do hear it. As I have heard it every hour of every day for five long years. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome back to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And we hope that you guys uh, didn't get attacked by your razors or chased by your car or typed at, I don't know, uh, texted at since the last episode. I hope you survived your machines. Speak for yourself. (laughs) I hope you all got chased by your razors. (laughs) But mine isn't electric. It's just a regular razor, but it it still still managed to chase me down. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) speaking of... Don't mind me. I'm just turning heel. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. uh, Enough about the thing about machines. Now on to uh, this episode, which is very much different. Uh, Season 2, Episode 5, The Howling Man. uh, Air date, November 4th, 1960. Uh, number one song, which I don't know why I thought we were going to miss this, but it saved the last dance for me, The Drifters. I love The Drifters. I'm so happy that this is showing up. Uh, number one film, The Alamo, the true story about how there is a basement in which there is a bicycle in it. Yes. <laughs> um, and this is also the day Kathy Griffin was born. So yeah, there you that's go. That's all I got. <laughs> so I, I won this That's the only uh, famous birthday I could find for that. That's funny. Um, just it, it seems like it wouldn't be... Uh, the Twilight Zone in the 60s did not talk about the the Kennedy uh, Nixon, uh, uh, you know, the whole presidential election cycle. So on this day, um, as John F. Kennedy arrived at Chicago Stadium for a pre-election rally, Jamie Cruz Alejandro forced his way through the crowd to get as close as he could to Kennedy's open convertible, then fought with police after running from them. He was found to be carrying a loaded uh, 25 caliber pistol. Moments later, the Reverend Israel Dabney was caught attempting to carry a 38 revolver into the Coliseum. Both men said that they were carrying the weapons for self-defense and were later released. How times have changed. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah. that, that's just for defense? But you really want to get close to the president? Yeah, so I thought that was uh, like just a, a weird uh, foreboding about what we know was going to happen later. Yeah, well, maybe they were both the devil. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you know we'll, we'll get there i mean i know that's a bit of a i guess we're giving up the ghost here a little bit early but we'll, we'll get there uh so um no i said maybe maybe <laughs> you know what you're right you're right we don't know we don't know until we get there um so yeah let's just get into uh cast and crew because i got nothing else yep all right so this episode was directed by our friend douglas hayes yet again um, who we talked about uh, initially with and when the sky was opened 
Um, one of our favorites, Elegy, The Chaser, After Hours, Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room. Um, yeah, so a very, very great director uh, working with the Twilight Zone here. So go back to that first one and when the sky was open, if you want to hear us talk about his career. Um, this episode was written by Charles Beaumont, which uh, I've become quite a fan of since we started doing the show. And this story does not change that. I was able to hunt down the short story that this episode was based on that was written for Rogue Magazine, which was Playboy's uh, one of their bigger co- uh, competitive magazines uh, based out of Chicago. Hmm. And well, in Beaumont, the more I read about him, and, I, and not that we need to go on about him, it's just he is like a fan first and then like a writer second. Like all he wants to do is yeah. like, like, please make it good and we deserve good. They're, we're starving. Make it good. You know, and he's just, he was the biggest cheerleader for the Twilight Zone because he felt like Serling was going to treat it seriously. And I just, the more I read about him, the more he says about all this stuff. It's a shame that he left as early as he did because he just seemed like yeah. a, a, just a guy that you could sit down and have a beer with and have a wonderful conversation and get passionate, you know? Yeah. Well, it seems like he was such a big fan of uh, fantasy and horror storytelling and everything, because I guess he was pretty sick when he was younger. And I think we talked about this the first time we talked about Charles Beaumont on here. But it seems like he really developed a love for this genre. And um, he was a perfect, perfect person to team up with uh, with uh, Rod Serling doing some of these episodes, because they both kind of tie in current events of the time. And uh, they always have very human characters within their story. So it was a perfect fit. Yeah. And this one, though, Beaumont was not happy with certain things. I'm not sure if you found out about some of the, the, the big changes. Uh, I mean, you read the story, yeah, so yeah. I'm sure you're aware. But yeah, they're pretty they're pretty evident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, we'll get into more of that later. So, uh, yeah, uh, let's get yes. into the cast. Yep. Cast. We got the incomparable John Carradine as brother Jerome. And this was the only Twilight Zone episode he was with the original series. He was in one other episode in uh, the 1985 series, and he was in an episode of Night Gallery. Uh, but John Carradine, mostly known for his horror work. That's what I've I've initially grown up uh, watching his stuff. Um, but he was part of John Ford's stable of actors that worked on most of those westerns that he did. He was one of the regulars that kept coming back. Um, are you are you terribly familiar with John Carradine? A little bit. I mean, I saw it like when I looked through his uh, filmography, I was like, I've seen Stagecoach, which I mean, surprising. It's a Western I've seen, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's not many, you know, uh, that was my goal this year. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And I know that, like, you know, it's, it's a famous like Hollywood family. Uh, so I wasn't as familiar with him as I was like, you know, his son. Yeah. Well, a uh, few recommendations I'll give people um, if you haven't seen Shockwaves. Uh, one of my favorites. It's a bunch of underwater Nazi zombies that are turned into super soldiers. Pretty ridiculous. Um, House of Long Shadows is really cool. It kind of brings back Vincent Price and uh, uh, John Carradine and uh, a few other of the older horror guys together just to do a uh, haunted house film. It's pretty fun. Uh, he was in The Howling. Uh, one of my favorites, The Sentinel. Oh, and, yeah, The uh, Sentinel. I've seen another- that, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, Sentinel is awesome. Um, And then I'm going to bring up another one that it was a movie I stumbled across when I was in Nashville. 
Um, Hillbillies in a haunted house. I just want to throw that throw that out there because uh, nobody talks about it and it's really goofy. And it has Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings and a bunch of people <laughs> running around in a haunted house and uh, gorilla suits and stuff. And it and it didn't get the Oscar that year. Why? I don't know. <laughs> no, but. <laughs> uh, so but yeah, John Carradine, a classic actor. And uh, I was real excited to see him pop up in the episode of Twilight Zone. I was reading about a little bit about his life. Like uh, he was friends with John Barrymore of, of you know, of the, another famous, you know, Hollywood family and, and Barrymore could party. Yeah. Um, but he began working for Cecil B. DeMille. That's another titan of the industry as a set designer. Uh, Carradine, however, did not have the job long. He said DeMille noticed the lack of Roman columns in my sketches. I lasted two weeks. Which I think is a funny <laughs> statement. And then once he heard his voice, though, he hired him to do voiceovers. So I think that's kind of a nice, like, you know, I can't, I, you know, you don't like my drawings, but you like my voice. Uh, and then when you pointed out the Twilight Zone, that was his last role was playing in the Twilight Zone and the 86 episode Still Life. So it's kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of odd. <laughs> they ended up with the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Um, next up, we have H.M. Winan, who plays uh, David Ellington. Uh, he was in, this was his only Twilight Zone episode. Uh, he was in an episode of Hawaiian Eye. There it is again. Four episodes. Um, I, I counted for you. So four. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. One day I'm going to find that. Yes. Um, he was also in a TV movie called Horror at 37,000 Feet, which I guess is a take off of the uh, Matheson story, Horror at 20,000 Feet, uh, which was the Twilight Zone episode and in the movie. Um, I had never heard of horror at 37,000 feet. Have you? No, I like that. That's a, like uh, an odd number, like 37,000. Yeah. Feet. And, and I guess, uh, um, oh my God, William Shatner is in that as well. <laughs> just like so. sitting beside him being like, yeah, no one's going to believe you. Like that just keeps telling him like, I've seen some shit. You're not <laughs> going to know. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, and it was, it was like, it was much scarier cause we were a lot lower to the ground at the time. No, uh, um, but I, I was looking up Ellington. He's still with us, by the way. He's ninety years old, uh, still working. Uh, and he, yeah, I saw his last credit was uh, two thousand sixteen, I think. Yeah. So not only did he do the four episodes of the, the esteemed Hawaiian Eye, uh, he was in an episode of Future Cop, which I've mentioned before, Airwolf, and Super Train. This guy might be the key to it all. You know, the, of everything that I find amazing in terms of TV work. How. How did I miss Super Train? I don't there? know. If he was in Johnny Midnight, this guy would become my favorite actor. <laughs> um, so next up, we have Robin Hughes, who plays the uh, the title character of Howling Man. Uh, this was his only Twilight Zone episode. Uh, did a lot of character work, but probably most famously, he was in Dial M for Murder, the Hitchcock film. Yeah, I saw that he did a lot of TV work, and then the other thing about him was that he was supposed to be on the HMS Hood, but he was called away to do officer's training, and that that was the same like day that Bismarck sank it. So whenever they talk about he, people had always mentioned that four people survived uh, the Bismarck. He he would just say five, just because he just he feels like he was that close to have been on that ship, and that's crazy to think that he was got yeah. called away just for some work, and then he couldn't you know whatever. Anyway, thought that was interesting. Yeah. And then uh, next up, we have Frederick von Lederber. I uh, probably butchered that as Brother Christophorus. Christopher. I can never say it the way they pronounce it. Brother Chris Christophorus. Christophorus, yeah. I think, is how they pronounce it. Because when I was reading it, I kept reading it as Christophorus. And uh, <laughs> 
but yeah, he uh, he had some interesting uh, films in his filmography. There, he was in one of my favorites of all time, Sorcerer, the William Friedkin film. Uh, this was his only Twilight Zone episode. He was in one of Fellini's last films, Ginger and Fred, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, notably. Uh, but yeah, he had some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, I, I wrote down Sorcerer as well, uh, which I, I, I've not seen. I know that I know the premise of it, and it sounds really tense. And I, it's been on my list. I just never got into it, but I know, like you know, it's a was a, a truck full of uh, nitroglycerin that they're trying to drive yeah. across a rickety road and bridge like just yeah yeah well it's based on a um oh i just read the book like two years ago um the wages of fear it was a french author who wrote it and uh there is a french film based on that because well it's like a three-hour black and white film from 1953 and uh yeah, but uh, Friedkin Sorcerer takes it in places that really speak to me, and I that, that's one of my favorite films of all time. Well, that was his follow-up to The Exorcist, wasn't it? Wasn't that like his passion project after that? Yeah, and it, it, it did not do well. <laughs> <laughs> I think, if I'm not mistaken, it came out the same weekend as the first Star Wars film. Oh. And it totally tanked him. Like, it made nothing... Uh, because of that yeah it was the same weekend as star wars so that was kind of the downfall of it you know if if it maybe came out a few months before that it it may be looked at as a classic you know it has its circles of fans now but i think it would be more widely uh, renowned if it had just come out maybe even a month earlier but just going up against star wars they just demolished everything in its path from then on for the next uh bit yeah, and again, it's still on my list to, to see, and it's my list of shame, which is much, much, much bigger every time I turn around. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, it's it's ever growing. <laughs> uh, and then the only other person I have on here is Azel Poole, who plays the housekeeper. Who uh, she was a little character actor. She did one other Twilight Zone episode. She had a uncredited role in Vertigo <laughs> and uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But I, I feel like any credit in Vertigo is worth mentioning. You yeah, know, yeah. her Vertigo <laughs> credit of best is films of all time. older mistaken identity. And I think that's a great credit. Like, <laughs> like they just have yeah. listed as that IMDb. So I had to make a note. So you're right. Anybody in Vertigo, they, they, it needs to be noted. Yeah. So that is it. That's every single person in this episode. All right. So let's just, let's really take it away. The prostrate form of Mr. David Ellington. Scholar, seeker of truth, and regrettably finder of truth. A man who will shortly arise from his exhaustion to confront a problem that has tormented mankind since the beginning of time. A man who knocked on a door seeking sanctuary and found instead the outer edges of the Twilight Zone. So I just need to say from the get-go, I'm very disappointed with the way Sterling showed up in this episode versus like what we've had for the first part of the season, they've been inventive and here he just kind of just pops into like frame, like just a quick jump cut and he's there. Yeah. I, I don't know what else you would do with this. Um, this episode isn't too flashy until, uh, close to the end there, but even then it's not, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how else you would do it other than just fading him in. 
I was hoping he was dressed as one of the shepherds and he could just pull the wig off and then start talking to the audience. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Like he lights a cigarette off of like, you know, Christoph's like lamp and starts talking. That would have just been the greatest thing ever. But I guess I guess I'm just hoping too much for, for the Twilight Zone well, uh, to pull a sight gag like that. Yeah, I was gonna say you just talked about how uh writers trusted him to take their work seriously. <laughs> and then <laughs> You're hoping for a sight gag in the beginning of this yeah. a serious episode. I was hoping for a, like a Gene Parmesan <laughs> moment. Like, ah, it's me right here the entire time. <laughs> no, um, but you're right. Like, I don't know how else they I mean. They could have they could have cut away to him like with like the one of the open castle windows behind him with lightning flashing or something. I don't know, but it just felt very like, well, he's here now. And versus like you had the television last week, and then like the I don't know. It's just they. For Douglas Hayes being very inventive with all the things that he's done so far, that just that felt a little off comparing like what else he's done. But this rest of this episode visually yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, well, and considering what Douglas Hayes brought to this episode as far as uh, uh, shots and everything, because a lot of it is handheld, a lot of it the camera is tilting back and forth the whole time, making you it, it's almost dreamlike. And I think we talked about that on. Uh, uh, some of his other episodes, but this one really, really goes for it. So I guess you are right. It's it's kind of strange, and especially with some of the effects later on the episode, the fact that they just went with something that simple is kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, it's not like that's not going to sink the episode for me. But like when I was watching it the second time, I'm like, <laughs> wait, that's like that's really pedestrian for especially for the, the what they pull later, you know. Which um, we'll get to that when we get there. Uh, for for whatever problems I might have with this episode, the 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 visual impact at the end is not it, you know. And I just and everything we've read about Hayes and seen so far, like he he would always take a challenge and face it head on and try to find a really interesting way out of it. And I respect that. And um, uh, in this, there's some ch- there's some challenging moments. It just felt like that was not that he had to come like top himself with a Sterling appearance, but of all the things, it well, just, that, that felt kind of that felt kind of weak. Also, he may not have had say on how Serling was edited into the episode. That's fair. So that that could have been something done after the fact, after he wasn't even there. But um, I don't know. This is neither here nor there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Serling is there, and he gives the narration. Yes. Um, so I guess we'll jump into the plot here. So we catch up. It is, uh, quote-unquote, modern day, and uh, we meet David Ellington, who is basically telling you he's I'm going to tell you a story and uh, you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to tell you it and you have to believe me. And uh, we go get a flashback to this Abbey and uh, they don't really give a place. I don't think it's just Europe in general. Um, In the short story, it's Germany. Um, so it, we it get a flashback. It's a rainy, thunderstorming night. There's lightning everywhere, and it's almost like a castle. And uh, Ellington runs up to the front door, and he's kind of out of it, and he's knocking on the door, and he's uh, he's he seems very panicked. So answering the door, I believe, is uh, Christophorus, who <laughs> asks him what's going on, and he's like, oh, I'm stuck out here in the rain. I'm lost. I'm I'm not feeling well. You have to let me in. Yeah, and Christophus is like, I'm sorry, no, 
like, we're, we're good. I'm sorry that you don't feel well. I can't let you in. <laughs> it was like pretty much like, you know, yep. like that's it. Nope. We're done. And, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he finally, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, I'm trying to figure out where I am here. Uh, Christophorus ends up taking him to meet brother Jerome, who was played by John Carradine. And Jerome tells him, no, we can't help you. <laughs> The same thing. You have to leave. And he ends up, he leaves him and uh, ends up collapsing on the floor. And it, that's where we get to see some of these great shots that Douglas Hayes has set up with the camera going back and forth. And really kind of setting up, uh, is this reality or not, you know? Well, and yeah. I think the short story goes to some of those places that this episode doesn't necessarily go to with, is this reality? Well, even that first shot of, of um, him walking into like the vestibule, or we would call it like the lobby of this place, uh, as David's walking forward with Christoph, um, Christopherson, uh, like as they're walking up, like towards the end of the place, the camera's tilting and tilting and tilting, where it's almost like he's walking against like this crazy angle, and it's it's like it doesn't physically watching it, you feel uncomfortable because you expect them to like fall out of the frame. That's how sharp the angle is. And they, the rest of the episode, they take these chances where it's one thing to do a Dutch angle. It's another thing to almost turn the camera upside down, it feels, as you're getting these shots. Very interesting. Yeah, and then and then go in the opposite direction with the shot. You know, yes. it's not like it goes to one angle and then sticks there. It goes, like, back and forth in certain scenes. It's, uh... <laughs> It, it, it was almost making me sick watching on a big screen TV. So. Yeah, like uh, my wife was like, she's like, that was starting to make me a little seasick as she was watching it. And I was reading about it. It actually took two uh, camera operators to pull those moves off. So it was actually really complicated back then. And they had to be, you know, really well choreographed. So um, respect for bringing, because anytime David was feeling like unwell or questioning what was going on, the camera just started moving. You know, and it kind of gave you, as you said, that kind of unmooring of reality, and it, it really sold it. Yeah. So it, this is one of the things uh, they do a great job setting up this episode. Um, they jump right into it. There's a lot of uh, expansion of some of these ideas of how he got to Europe and everything in the short story. But in uh, in the short story, he ends up coming down with pneumonia and basically just wakes up in this abbey of monks and has no idea where he is. So it, there's more of a mystery from there as he's trying to figure out who these people are, where he is. And so when things start actually happen happening, there's a lot more of a mystery, a little bit more time is taken, but obviously, um, as we said on previous episodes, these things are about 20 minutes long, so there's not too much time to be taken up giving backstories um, but I'll go into some of the backstory about the Ellington character a little bit later after we get in through the rest of the story. Yeah, I feel like they could have taken a little bit out of uh, the one speech that uh, Brother Jerome gave towards the end, that big 10-minute speech it felt like. I'm sure they could have taken some time out of that and applied it elsewhere yeah, in the episode. That was almost line for line from the story, too. Oh, wow. So I, maybe that was one of... Uh, Beaumont's favorite parts or something maybe some of his favorite lines of dialogue so he's like we got to keep this in you got to keep this one in well so I, I like that brother Jerome even though he he has these these weird kind of rules and says you know you can't be here you can't do this he doesn't seem he doesn't seem unhinged 
you know, and and if you look at his desk when you first walk into his like office, it seems like very much like a business desk, even though he's dressed like a shepherd with a crook, like a crook staff. It's like he's very like he has he has a, like he even says like it's a matter of perspective when he's talking to David about what's going on. So you you don't get the idea of like crazy profit. You just get the idea that wow they they have their own rules here. But there, there isn't. I didn't get the sense of like lunacy, you know. Um, so that that which well, you could have easily tilted into point. that. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, um, not at this point. So um. while this is going on, though, every so often you hear this like shouting, this cry, this howl. Every so often that was played at the beginning of the episode. That is very. It is very off-putting, and and the people around are acting like they don't hear it. You know, so so David's wondering if like he's the one that's hearing this this loud howling noise, and everyone's like, "I don't I don't know what you're talking about," which you know, yeah, that, that would that would bother me if I heard that noise. The howl sounded like the uh, howl in the background of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. <laughs> um, I forget which scene it is, but you can hear this howling in the background <laughs> every time it happened in this episode. That's all I could think of. <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, so yeah, like as David is being told, like basically like, you know, um, he, well, actually he wakes up and, and he, he goes and he finds the cell door of the howling man. And it's a guy that's, it's just a regular looking guy. And they have the conversation. The guy's like, you got to let me out of here. They're like, they're, they're crazy. Um, I was just, I was just in the park with, with uh, my lady and I was giving her a kiss and they threw me in here. Is it a crime to kiss somebody? And, and David's like, you know, I don't, I don't agree that you should be in there, but I don't know everything yet. And it's this very compelling, like, you know, just like he, he seems, he seems reasonable. The guy in the cell, the one that's screaming. Um, and yeah. it's, it's very, uh, you know, for at first glance, like he's very, uh, he reminds me a lot of Jeffrey Hunter in King of Kings, which I mean, I'm probably, I'm sure that's probably a reason for that. Um, but very, yeah. very attractive, you know, well-kept man, except he's in tattered clothes and kept in a, and kept in a prison, you know, prison cell. Otherwise he's okay. Yeah, so uh, Ellington confronts uh, Brother Jerome about it, and he basically tells him, uh, no, there's no man. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, I I saw him, and uh, I spoke to him. And he's like, no. So he tells him he's going to go involve the authorities. He's going to go talk to the police. And Jerome finally tells him, like, okay, the man in the cell is not a man. It is the devil himself. So he said that he captured him and he's been holding him uh, prisoner in there, which and then he brings up the fact that there has been peace around the world and there's been no wars for a while. And it is worth mentioning that the story, the flashback takes place after World War One. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting because like, for the first part, like Brother Jerome, he keeps saying there is no man. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you're not helping. You're not helping David understand what's going on by just like basically saying, I don't know what you're talking about, Wink. You know, like it, this, that's how that kind of felt. It's like you got to you got to address this more directly. And eventually whenever he goes to he says, like, are you going to go really? He's like, would you really go to the police? And David's like, yeah. would you? And he's like, all right, I guess I'll tell you. Like that didn't take well, much to convince him. I like the fact that he is telling him the truth, though, when he's like, there's no man in there. There's no man being held here. And he's like, all right, well, that's not the whole truth. There is no man in there, but it's the devil. <laughs> yeah, and there was I really... like that little play on word where he's like, I'm not lying. There's a great quote where he says, uh, um, honest men make terrible liars or something, talking to him. Uh, I thought that was a 
fun little quote. But I like that the, the, the whole reveal of the devil was right by the chapter break. So he's like, it's the devil. And you hear this loud music that it fades to black. And then immediately after that, it fades back in. He's like, as I said, it's the devil. Like, it was kind of like they, <laughs> they waited for three minutes and stared at each other while the commercials played. And be like, by the way, it was the devil. Well, I love anything that has conveniently placed thunder and lightning. Yes. Uh, you know, and especially with the set. And everything. It's it's such a like classic Hollywood gothic set, like castle. And uh just every time there was some sort of reveal or something kind of terrifying said, uh, thunder and lightning, you know. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, uh, always a sucker for that. Uh I guess they wanted to, to do this more in like the vein of like the thirties horror films. And you could speak more to that than I would, uh, in terms of like it looked very it had that kind of um theatrical kind of view to it like that very uh just uh, i don't know like it is a castle you have you have secret men speaking of secret things and it's just all like you know you you cannot know the truth type of thing you know and that felt very much like a throwback to earlier horror yeah um i think they nailed it like i honestly think that the look of this fits right in with those um and again i i think the stories that uh Beaumont was really interested were those stories from that time. So he was able to kind of put a modern twist on those classic horror movie tropes from the thirties and forties, which I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of the themes that he presents in the story are things we won't see until later in horror. And, uh, I, I was really impressed yet again, impressed with Beaumont. And I, he is one of these literary figures in horror that I don't think gets the respect he deserves. Yeah. Well, like in the conversation that uh, Jerome has with David is saying, Hey, you know, we, we caught him. Like there's all this, like, you know, the war was going on. We, you know, there's not been war since. And then David's like, yeah, but there's been suffering and heartache. And Jerome's like, that's, you know, man is meant to, to deal with these hardships, but not like to the degree that the devil, like basically he brings his machines and, and the violence and all of this. It's like, he almost views like the day to day is like, that's, that's what makes you, you know, that, that is the struggle was being human, but then the devil just makes things way worse. So if we keep him at bay, then we keep like the big sinning out. And that's, that's a very abstract concept, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So you talked about brother Jerome, uh, not seeming crazy. So when he's trying to convince, uh, Ellington that it is in fact the devil that he's imprisoned in this chamber, um, David comes up with this great question. He's like, if that is the devil, how do you keep him behind a, just a plain wooden door like that? And he starts screaming about his uh, <laughs> was it? his staff of truth <laughs> and waving it up in the air. And that's the moment where I think it plays with your expectations where uh, it, it kind of gives you that feeling of like, oh, maybe these monks are insane. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I had my notes here. I was like, yeah, I'd say I'd believe him, too, if that means I get to leave. You know, like it's kind of like, do you, do you believe me? <laughs> yeah. y- yes. Sure. I believe you. Staff of power. Love the long coat. Got to go, you know? Yeah. And the actor that plays Ellington, the way he says, like, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> like, perfect delivery on that. <laughs> um, so later later on, um, after he ends up leaving Brother Jerome's room, um, he's walking by um, the Howling Man again in the cell. And he's like, oh, they told you more lies, didn't they? And um, 
he's like, you have to free me from this. And I think Christophorus pops back up and takes him back to his cell. He's like, don't talk to him. You know, <laughs> well, so like Jerome says, go directly to your room when you leave here. And then three steps later, uh, he's in front of like the howling man. It's like, yeah, you, 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 you could have had an escort there or you could have walked him to the room yourself. That's also an option too, brother Jerome. I don't know about that, but I thought it was funny. He's like, it's the honor system. You won't go near the devil. Will you? And he's like, no, I won't do that. You know, like, <laughs> but Christophorus was there and he's like, we had a, uh, Jerome felt like you may have gotten lost <laughs> and it leads him to a cell anyway. So it's That's like, true. they should have just escorted him to begin with. Right. So, yeah, so uh, Brother Christophorus uh, Phosphorus, uh, he, he, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not trying to mess it up on purpose. I just I trip over it. Um, I like the Christophorus in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they both live hard lives, you know. Uh, both have beards. Both have sometimes. beards, yes. yeah. Um, so uh, he brings them to his room and locks the door on the inside and is basically waiting the night out with, um, with uh, uh, David. And, um, and so then as, as brother, uh, you know, that guy, uh, fall, he falls asleep, he just falls dead asleep. And then David's like, Oh, keys. And he goes over and pulls the key off of like the necklace. And, and the guy just, he's like the heaviest sleeper ever. doesn't even react. Yeah, you know, opens the door, walks over to the howling man, and again, it's like you know, he's like, you just got to help me. Um, you just got to lift this um, this staff of power that's blocking the door. And then David's like, well, why can't you lift it yourself? The staff of truth. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, why can't it's you important, it? Paul? It's the staff, staff of, of truth. truth. <laughs> um, yeah, Indiana Jones is going to find this later. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so it, he's like, yeah, why can't you lift it yourself? Because because like, you see, you see the howling man reach through the hole in the door and he could easily reach that, you know, like, and also I just want to point out the Howling man did not skip arm day. Like he actually had some muscle on his arms for being held captive. I just feel like, you know, he, I don't know what he's doing in a cell other than howling. Um, but he's like, no, 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 we don't, it's too, it's too late to worry about that. So just help me, help me, help me. And he, and so the David pulls the staff of truth, um, out of the, the little, you know, the door thing and opens the door. And that's my other question. Sure. You got this mystical, powerful item keeping this door locked shouldn't there be another lock or something else like just a physical thing just in case like what if the staff does fall out like by accident you know like i feel like there needs to be more security around this door yeah yeah that's that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) Um, well we'll get to what what was on that door in the short story okay that makes a little bit more sense later on um yeah so the the howling man runs out and reveals himself to be the devil in incredible fashion uh in some of the best effects i think we've seen this entire series so far yeah it's a combination of two things so one uh douglas hayes who directed um long live walter jameson when we talked about that episode about how they made him look like he the jameson like aged by using the red green filter trick of the makeup this I feel did like, he direct that episode too? I, I think he did. Maybe I'm wrong, but either way, like they they knew about the effect from the pre- yeah. Well, it was the same uh, makeup artist that William oh, Tuttle that worked on this one as well. There you go. That's um, he was ahead of the MGM crew that worked on this. Um, yeah, I'm, oh. I'm probably wrong. I'm always wrong about that. But he they still employed the same the same trick, and I think this one like it took me a second. Like I actually I was like, wait, what just happened? And it is so masterful. Like the definition on his face when it just pops, like you get, like you see, it is, it is evil. And 
I, it just it holds up like it, people would people would see it now think it's a morph effect and it is not and it it is a sight to see yeah well i love that the horns kind of come out first and it's real subtle and uh it, it's, it's kind of terrifying but he gets that cape and everything and uh he ends up vanishing into a fireball in a cloud of smoke he disappears and uh <laughs> And of course, Ellington just kind of collapses on the floor, like, "Oh, damn it!" <laughs> yeah, I just, what did I just do? Well, like th- then the transition of him from um from being you know the Howling Man to the Devil. Um, oh yeah, it was Anton Leader that directed uh, Long John Walter Jameson. I'm wrong. Chalk, just okay. another another point in the board that Paul's wrong about something. And did you know well, John, William John, Tuttle though is yeah. the same effects guy, so might as well. John Williams did the makeup effects for this this episode. You don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the whole bit of him, like, because there's this, he he walks at a, like, a, a very fast gait, uh, like, be- like, behind these pillars. And mm. each time he passes behind a pillar, the makeup advances. And it's it's very, it, it's not seamless, but it's close. And I was reading about how they did this, and they had him in the makeup each time, each, each time it was advanced, like, walk the same pace through all the four pillars each time as they, they would change the makeup. And then they would time the camera. This wasn't a control track. Like they didn't have that back then, but they figured out yeah. a way to film this at speed, like four passes. And then they edited it together with the, the, the column pass. And it's other than, other than the horns look a little dinky. I don't know. They didn't look pointy to me. They looked kind of nubby. Other than that, it was a hell of an effect. Yeah. That, that's so impressive without all the timing and the automated stuff we have now, like, and now you could just do it digitally and screw it. You know, why even go through trouble? Just uh, the amount of planning and timing and, uh, mastery that went into this basically 10 second shot. It's just, it's, it's so inspiring. Like I, I love seeing stuff like this. Yeah. And, and if, if you guys are listening to this episode without having watched it, I didn't I mean, however you feel about the episode just go and at least see that that quick that the red green transition and then the column walk like it's you know you do, for something made this long ago i just it feels like how did they figure that out and then we see stuff now where it's like you have all this education and knowledge and you still can't come up with anything serviceable at times you know that's that's <laughs> me like get off my lawn but that's how that feels <laughs> But it, it's yeah, it, yeah. You never have to argue about practical f- uh, effects to me. I'm, <laughs> I'm practical all the way, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's a so I mean, so yeah, it's the devil. He disappears in a, a, a column of flame, and the brother Jerome runs over, and he was just like, "Oh, you let the devil go." And it's like you need to be way angrier about this than you are. But he wasn't. He didn't seem that angry. He just seemed kind of like, "I knew this was going to happen." I probably should put a secure, like a padlock on that door as well or something, you know, like a, at least a bicycle combination lock. And then, yeah. and then they realize it's like, you know, it's, it's the folly of man to not believe that that was the devil, you know? And, and that's, that's the flashback story. Yeah. Well, I love, uh, I, I when I was doing research for this episode, somebody summed the story and this episode up with the quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I was like, that is the perfect quote for this entire story. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, because it, basically by being a good person and wanting to help this man who is who he thought wrongfully imprisoned in there, basically let evil back into the world. You know, and it, that's that's such a terrifying and beautiful <laughs> point of the story, you know, is that we're all kind of walking that line between good and evil and everything. And, um, 
what we're capable ourselves of. And it's, it's really impressive more. So I really recommend the short story after we finish this ending here, I'll go into some of the differences and some of the stuff that I think in the short story really seal this as a horror classic for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because I know, I know of the changes or what, um, what, um, uh, shoot, uh, <laughs> Beaumont. I, w- I know what he wanted for the teleplay, and I know that he didn't get some of those things. So I'm wondering if it's some of the stuff in the story. So uh, anyway, so yeah, we, got maybe. The, we got the flashback. So then we find out that um, that David's talking to a housekeeper, and he's just like, <laughs> "All right, so I told you my story. You have to believe me. I have the devil in this closet over here with a really <laughs> tiny staff of power." Whole, like lock the door in place. Which, staff of truth. Staff of truth. Power truth. Sorry. It's, it's plus five, the devil keeping. Um, it's and, and it's, it's like, important. It keeps the devil at bay, Paul. Like, I, I kind of want to make one for you so you can just put it, put it like on like, you know, at your house, like the, keeping the garage like locked, but like just in case there's a staff of truth here, that car's not going anywhere. Um, I put it, oh, I put it over my movie room. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That'd be awesome. Um, so he's like, okay, I got the devil in there. There's, there's a staff of truth there. We're good. Um, I'm going to go take him back to brother Jerome. So I got to make arrangements. And he tells the housekeeper, do not open that door. Like he just spent like 20 minutes telling her why not to open that door. And then he leaves and he's like, there's before he leaves, like, well, there's some howling. He's like, that's not, he's like, I could deal with that. You know, you could deal with that too. And he's kind of, he's a little on edge too. And he leaves. And then the first goddamn thing she does is walk over and take the staff of, of truth off the little the hinges and opens the door. It's like the one thing, you know, like the one thing I told you not to do, you did it immediately as I walked out the door. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the folly of man, right? <laughs> not going to believe anyone else. I just, but she had a look on her face and just like, okay, I got it. And then like, she just walked like, oh, maybe he was telling me that's because he wants me to open the door. It was very like, what are you doing? And then the doors opened and you know, you don't see what's inside. Um, unbeknownst to the viewing audience, the Vietnam war would happen, you know, a little, a little time later, you know? So it's like, you begin to wonder of like, man, would that have all been avoided if she just listened to, to David, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah. like just, that was the part where I'm just like, really, you're kidding me. After all that, someone's just going to walk over and be like, oh no, 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 I got it. I'm just going to open this door. Yeah. Her facial expression looked more terrified that. She was having the realization that she was working for a psychopath. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, if somebody told you that story, like, obviously, we saw the 20 minutes of backstory and we actually saw it. But imagine somebody telling you that story. There's no way in hell you believe him. Well, maybe no way in hell isn't the best uh, <laughs> uh, way to describe that. But, but uh, if, if that was the case, though, it's like, listen, OK, it's like, Kevin, I just like I, I'm going to call go, the police. I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to be back in a minute. I have to go get some special duct tape because I have the devil. Just don't open the door. He had preparations to attend to. Yeah. And, you know, I have to go Home Depot. I got to make a bunch of staffs of truth, Um, you know, and I'll be back in a minute. And it's like, it's going to howl. Just like, you know, that's fine. Like, wouldn't it be kind of those things where it's like either you call the police immediately or you just kind of wait patiently. He comes back and then you leave and call the police. Like, I feel like it's either way. I'm not opening that door. Like, you know, like, especially if that noise is coming out of it, I'm leaving it where it is. As sad as it oh, may I'm sound. I'm opening it. <laughs> and that's that why door we'll, is open. That's why we'll always have war. Thanks, Kevin. Yep. <laughs> 
so you're yeah. welcome. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's your story. So, uh, so how does this vary from uh, the short story? Yeah. So the short story, uh, like I said, was written for a men's magazine. Uh, he was able to get away with a lot more than the Twilight Zone was uh, able to get away with. So they give a little back story on uh, David Ellington. He is from Boston. He comes from a rich family. And uh, he kind of has these sexual desires that he wants to go to Europe to kind of deal with. So he he takes a trip to Paris. And eventually he gets bored of that. And he decides he's going to back back across um, Germany. Well, across Europe. And uh, ends up in Germany. Ends up. It's too much for him. He he gets sick, you know. Um, so that's the first thing is that he there's this whole sexual undertone of the story, and it being for a magazine that was a competitor to Playboy makes sense. Um, but with all of the stuff with the devil in the story, and you know, it it, it, it makes more sense that there's that kind of. Uh, Ad, not Adam and Eve, like the snake. Was was that story? The Garden of Eden. Um, yeah, the Garden of Eden. You know, where it's like that forbidden fruit and everything. Um, but there are a lot of biblical references within the characters because you have the devil. You have uh, Brother Jerome is called Father Jerome in the story, and uh, it, that's where some of the shorthand in the episode gets lost. You were talking about Jerome not being angry with him. Um, at the end in the short story he's got a lot of similarities to the character of jesus and uh so he's very forgiving in the story in the episode you don't really get that like i said it being shorthand and uh kind of blown through the the teleplay um some of that stuff is lost but then the reference to his wife in the story things go a little bit further in kissing and it's kind of uh a correlation between adam and eve there and, you know, it, it's it's got a lot more on the religious side of things. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest change that it's probably the one you were talking about that uh, Charles Beaumont really wanted this episode. The staff of truth. Truth. God, I can't speak. <laughs> uh, the staff of truth was something that was developed just for this episode because Beaumont wanted crosses on the door to keep the devil at bay. And instead of carrying the staffs, the monks were supposed to be carrying around uh, giant crosses, and that's what they hit him with when they captured him. That's what was keeping him at bay. But uh, the producers and Serling, I believe, all thought that maybe that was a little bit too negative of a picture on the church and that it would cause a lot of backlash from uh, viewers. So they ended up coming up with the Staff of Truth thing. And I think it's, I think if there would have been a cross on the door, and you would have gotten that stronger religious iconography in this episode that this would have been a way stronger visual representation of the story. I, I agree. I absolutely. And I know like the idea because the cross is supposed to be lying across the doorway like the staff was. And that, that would be a very striking image of the cross. Oh, it'd be so strong. In. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and also like they changed some of, like you said, it was supposed to be father and it changed it to brother. Like the whole thing was like, listen, yeah. if we had make this identify with any one particular religion, we're going to have problems. So I, yeah. you know, I, I, I can see where they're coming from. Like, uh, that's fine. You know, like you yeah. still get the struggle. 
Well, and the biggest change is obviously the ending. Um, in the short story, he has a massive amount of guilt as he's watching World War II take place. Um, he basically, when he sees a picture of Hitler in the newspapers, uh, he recognizes him as being the devil. And I, I think that is so much stronger. Um, but he gets a postcard from uh, Father Jerome in the story after World War II that basically tells him um, that he has captured the devil once again and that uh, peace has been restored to the earth. But this ending leaves so much up to interpretation. Uh, me, I'm not, I'm not very religious, so I appreciate that. So you can kind of take it any way you want. You can kind of have it as, oh, he had pneumonia, he was having fever dreams. None of it was real. You can take it as, well he's not actually the devil. You know, he was just led by suggestion to that, that this guy was actually the devil, you know, or you can take it as this guy was the devil and he was responsible for all the wars. Um, I really enjoy that. I like that kind of ending that's left up to your upbringing, your beliefs. Um, it, it, it kind of harkened back, not harkened back, but, um, have you ever seen the movie martyrs? Oh, that's the French the, film. No, I've not. Yeah, it, it's got kind of a similar end where uh, you can take it multiple ways based on your beliefs in religion and afterlife and everything. And it's one of my favorite endings. And when I was reading the short story, it gave me that same feel where it was like, uh, I'm not religious. Um, I'm going to take this as it's not the devil. You know, it's just he was led by suggestion by these crazy monks and this crazy guy that was locked in a cell. You know, <laughs> like everyone was insane. And, uh, you know, the postcard, give or take, if that was real or not. But um, in the episode, it's pretty set in stone that it was the <laughs> devil in that room, you know, yeah. and, uh, which is fun. And uh, I always appreciate the devil being on screen in some form. But, uh, yeah, I just I this short story is so strong. And, uh, you know, I've talked about I'm so grateful for the show to really introducing me to Charles Beaumont. But this I really, really enjoyed the short story, and I recommend if anyone can track it down. It's kind of hard to get a hold of the the compilation of the short stories. The paperback that this is in has been out of print for a while. I think the cheapest copy of the little paperback I found was like thirty or forty dollars. Um, but there is an audiobook that you can find on Audible that has the story in it. So I recommend hunting it down. And I recommend checking out all of Charles Beaumont stuff because everything I've read and listened to, I just uh, I've been blown away. So, so that's my piece. <laughs> no, there, there, there was one other change in the episode that so Beaumont was he did not want the 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 big devil reveal like you're kind of speaking to the story. He wrote it yeah, originally. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, in the story that I, I left that out, he is described as being too terrible to. Uh, uh, I wrote it down because it was important. Yeah, he he was described as a man past death and a face that cannot be described. And it it he uh, talks about like his long claw like nails grabbing him through the uh, uh, through the bars of the door and everything. So when he escapes, like he already looks evil. <laughs> so there was no transformation. He just kind of vanishes. So what was supposed to happen in the teleplay that Beaumont wanted was that the, the cells opened, the Howling Man runs free, 
and then um, as he's running towards like a fence or like a wall to get over, David, you know, has like a second thought and is like, maybe, you know, maybe I regret this decision. I don't know. And as he goes reaching for the howling man, uh, just out of like, so the whole, like he's out of view, except for you see a cloven hoof that he reaches for and it gets pulled away over the top of the wall and then he's gone. And yeah. Beaumont wanted that as more of kind of like, yeah, that, that that is the devil, but you also leave a lot to the imagination. Um, I, you know, I, I get why, you know, this is a Friday night show that is anthology sci-fi horror. <laughs> you you got to show the devil, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I kind of agree with Beaumont. I would have liked that uh, aesthetically better, but yeah, I, I guess I, I can agree with you as well, but I, you kind of have to show it. Yeah, I mean, I um, I also agree. But, and I like, we got that awesome effect, too, so oh, that's, yeah. that's also worth it. Um, I, I do like ambiguous endings in that sense, more of like, oh, well, we think he's more responsible for the atrocities of war. And then, like, well, he's gone now. What's going to happen next? You know, like, that's that's interesting to me. And it reminds me, just real quick, You, uh, there's a book I, I, I may have even mentioned on the show before. It's called Good Omens. It's being actually made into a, a TV series now, which makes me really happy. Uh, it's a um, Neil Gaiman and um, Terry Pratchett wrote a comedy about the end of the world, like the Book of Revelations. And it's, it's one of the few books I've read over and over and over again. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up early. They're, they're summoned early. There's a whole mistake. It's very British. Um, and the one of the horsemen is war. And it's this redheaded lady that um, no one can understand. Like every time she shows up to a place, she's just a journalist. And then everyone's like, but like she's supposed to be a war reporter. And she writes the, the most bloody, like descriptive stories that have no no purpose other than to talk about what happens in war. And she shows up to these peaceful places. And within like six months, it's completely torn apart and everyone's mad at each other. And the, all the reporters are angry because they don't know how she gets the scoop. But that's the whole thing is that she is war and she just really likes writing about it. And, and that kind of makes me think of this, too, where it's like wherever wherever war goes, it's going to happen. Yeah. Just, well, it's book. too bad nobody had a staff, a staff of truth and uh, <laughs> good omens. <laughs> oh, but if, you've, if, if nobody if people like entertaining, well-written comedy about the apocalypse, I, I definitely check it out. That, that's my piece. That's all I Definitely. got about that. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. So I, I feel like there's a there's a lot we talked about here about the devil. I'm sure the devil as a presence is something that we're going to see again later on. Because how do you how do you write one episode involving the devil in the Twilight Zone and not do another one later? I'm sure maybe not this devil, but there will be more that will show up later. I, I, there has to be, right? Yeah, I'm hoping so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Do you have anything else like notes about the episode? Oh man, I got like four pages of notes <laughs> scribbled about the episode and about the short story. And uh, if I if I came off as confused this entire episode, it's because I've immersed myself in this story for like two days, and uh, <laughs> I I kind of forget where the TV show and the story ends at this point. Um, but I think I I think I kept everything pretty straight. Um, let me see if there's anything else. I, I love Carradine in this. Like I said, uh, he he plays that line very well of, uh, like you said, almost businesslike and getting to the point of hysterics, especially at the Staff of Truth. <laughs> um, uh, David Ellington, at his, uh, what is it, H.M. Winant, I think he did an okay job. Um, didn't have too much to do with his character. Uh, but other than that, 
yeah, I love the short story. I think the episode is uh, it's it's good. I think it could have been better. Yeah, like I don't I don't want to compare and contrast this to the previous episode because they're completely different animals. But again, I mm-hmm. feel like tonally this episode got so much right, and it just yeah. it just something about it just didn't quite hit me. And then, like the previous episode, there was a lot of great ideas, but it just wasn't put together. And I just feel like, and they and they were written by t- different people, different production order. But I just I can't. I feel like I'm looking at one and I see the other in terms of like, man, there's some really good, interesting ideas here, but they're not complete. Yeah. Well, it. I think I'm going to chalk it up to just having to kind of rush through the story, not being really be able to take your time with each of the characters and. Uh, really setting that more complicated religious aspect to this. I mean, it's, it's there definitely in this, but I feel like some of the stuff is lost. If you haven't actually read the source material, that which is happen. never good because especially, uh, at this time, like I, I'm sure a lot of people weren't familiar with Beaumont's writing unless they just happen to stumble across it. Or if they liked, uh, like, you know, independent nudie bags, you know, that were competitive. It, that's what I mean. So there, there's, <laughs> it had to have been a small percentage of people watching this that had read the short story. So if, if there are things that are referencing uh, moments within the story that don't happen in the teleplay, like, that's not, a, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So, but, and, and not that it would necessarily hurt it, but it's just little things, like you said, with Jerome not being that angry that he just let the devil out. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it, like that's kind of a weird reaction. But when you get the kind of Jesus comparison with him in the short story, uh, it makes a lot more sense how forgiving he is. Yeah, well, that, that does make sense now you said that. Uh, but he looks more like Moses yeah. to me than Jesus. So I was, you know, you know I was kind of confused. Uh, it's because of the staff. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is the staff. They look like they're just going to go herd some sheep. Yeah. <laughs> and then lock them up and then put the staff of truth across the door and they'll never come out. Um, <laughs> what, so, if, what if he opened the door and a sheep ran out? That'd be amazing. <laughs> like, but with horns. The sheep has to have, like, devil horns. That'd be amazing. Uh, so one last note about the episode before we get to the twist here. I, I wanted to mention this because it's funny. Uh, a visitor to the set was uh, Beaumont's friend, William F. Nolan, and he said, I remember how concerned they were about the kind of cries and howlings, how demonic they can make them. So they played endless tape recordings of howls to see which howl they liked the best, and they'd all sit around and say, well, that howl is not satanic enough, and that howl's too high. It's almost like a woman. And maybe if we took this howl and then this howl, and he's like, you know, we just had a big howl session. And I would love to have been in room. <laughs> like, listening. Sorry. Uh, how many cigarettes do you think were smoked while they were all just sitting in a dark room listening to just howling sounds? Yeah. I just like the idea of just like, no, that's not, that's too effeminate. We can't have the devil sound like a woman. Like what? Oh, but I just, I, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's what happens when you make this kind of media though. Like you got to find that moment and, and the howl that they have is very, I, I don't know how, how you would have Satan crying out. I mean, it, it sounds more animalistic and like, like, you know, this, I don't know. It's it, it's fine, yeah. you know. Well, it's it's interesting that we've brought up Friedkin on this episode because uh, the sounds that he was able to um, produce for The Exorcist, uh, that's that's exactly how I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> that that's it. Like yeah. he he, I think captured the sound perfectly. So it's kind of fun that we brought him up. That's that's true. Yeah, there you go. So all right, uh, yeah, that's what I have here. Let's just get to the the twist. 
I don't know how to grade this one, honestly, because it's just like he's like, I'm going to tell you a story about the time I let the devil out, and then you're going to let the devil out. Like, I don't know. I, I just, I, 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 like, I feel like giving it a one is like kind of mean because it's like it's not a bad. I don't. I just. I don't know where the twist was. I really don't know. Like, it just. I. Yeah. The twist is that uh, when we cut back, I, I'm. This is what I'm going to rate it on. It's when we cut back and we find out that he's recaptured the devil, and now it's his turn to try and convince somebody that uh, he's trapped the devil and they shouldn't let him out. That's that's really all it is. Yeah. And what would you grade that? Like, out of, out of- uh, I, I'd probably give it a two because it's basically just the entire story all over again in about 15 seconds. So no, <laughs> it, it's nothing that's gonna really shock you at the end but yeah i i just hate giving this such a low grade because i'm in love with the story <laughs> like did they but, really yeah i'll yeah, give it a two i'll give it i'll give it a two too like i feel like had they just actually placed it in the time in which the story was set and then had like the coda of like you know him realizing that oh crap this guy started world war ii i think th- i mean granted we just already had a hitler yeah i was gonna say i don't know if we can do another uh hitler reveal (laughs) at the end of an episode like three episodes later so you're telling me that that shopkeeper was the devil because he became hitler for a minute Uh, it's all it's a connected universe now no um yeah yeah i don't know it's just it's it's a two i'll give it a two that sounds that sounds fair i wrote a one i'll give it a two yeah i just man i can't get over it just the way it's written about hitler and uh, him recognizing him in the newspapers is such is such a chilling moment. And compared to compared to the end of this, like it just the teleplay. And I know a lot of people. Like I read some reviews on this episode that people are saying that he improved on his short story. And I I don't agree I completely disagree. Just, I I don't agree with it at all. I I I think it. I think the gist of the story is there, but. Other than the postcard reveal in the story, like everything is almost perfect in it. So, yeah, I, I, I think there are a few letdowns going into this episode. Yeah. So, all right. That's so, I think yeah. that will uh, put a pin in the howling man, and he'll he will keep howling. Uh, so, that's, <laughs> I don't know. I got nothing. Um, so, so anyway, so uh, Kevin, how can people get a hold of us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Strange Highways. Join in the conversation on there. Uh, we do have a Tumblr going, uh, which I still have not done anything with. Uh, <laughs> That's the twist. There's nothing there. Yes. Yeah. Well, there is. There's a uh, missized header picture on it. So <laughs> <laughs> at least we got the name, right? Yeah. Uh, you can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com if you want to leave us a voicemail or voice memo and uh, email. Um, if you have any thoughts on this episode or any of the episodes we've covered or just have a question for us, um, feel free to do so. And then, uh, if you would rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher and Google play, uh, we are available on all those places and those ratings and reviews would really help us out. Absolutely. So next week is, it's kind of a big deal. It is, uh, the episode "Eye of the beholder. This is one of the ones that everyone always talks about when it comes to iconic, like top all time Twilight Zone episodes. So this will be exciting. Um, I will do my yeah. best here to. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say uh, the ink hasn't dried, as they say, but um, we may or may not have a pretty special guest coming on next week. So um, 
keep an eye on the Facebook page for that. I'll announce it as soon as we nail it down. Yes. But I feel like we've set a precedent with some of these uh, more famous episodes of having special guests on. So I'm going to try and keep it going for next week. I like it. So uh, so I'm going to do my best to read what Sterling has to say, though I've received the, the, the wonderful feedback of like, I need to do this more like Sterling. Um, I don't know if I can do that. I, I could try. So let me, let me, let me. So this is what Sterling has to say about I, the Beholder. So, so excited. Yeah. <laughs> Might have to stop recording and just try this seven times. Not really. Uh, next week, you will see the bandages unwrapped and you'll get a good close look at the face beneath them. It is an excursion into the odd and into the very, very different. Our play is called Eye of the Beholder and it comes recommended. I hope we'll see you next week on the Twilight Zone. Thank you and good night. Man, that was fantastic. It's, what I don't know. It's I did first take. That was yeah, awesome. Yeah, I closed my eyes and I could see Surly. <laughs> it's weird. I started smoking while talking too. Um, I didn't get to say the word Jim Crackery like I did last week. Um, but yeah, that's it. I'll be holding next week. I'm excited for this. Um, it's I. I know I've seen the episode. I just it's been such a long time though. I mean, not that I've forgotten like what it is, but this will be kind of nice to to you know go through the process again. So um, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a very long time for me as well. Obviously, I think it's one of those ones that everyone has seen. Um and it's a twist that you can never forget. So, it'll be ex- exciting to go back and watch it with some fresh eyes and uh, a little bit more knowledge on the series. Absolutely. So, all right, so till next week, um be safe and I don't know, don't let the devil out. I guess that's probably the best thing I could say. Well, uh hold on to your staffs of truth. Uh don't go to sleep without one. <laughs> Jerome will see you now. What was that? The wind. Come.